Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Look at the room here. Hobier sorting his feet out, scores. And wins it for Tottenham. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly, and I'm joined by The Athletic's Jack Pickbrook and James Moore today. It's Monday morning, and Spurs' 2 0 win over Everton means that Tottenham have made their best ever start to a Premier League season, about which I'll say more in just a second. Um, but first, for that, because um, uh, of course these lads have uh, more access to the stadium, in my view, these days, I believe there's been a development in the mystery of the ever-changing pre-match music at the stadium. And James, you're, you're the one who watches this with, I think, with the uh, with the closest ear. And I need to apologise as well to Jack for when I, last week I... I um, blindsided him with a question saying all that mid-2000s indie music's horrible now, isn't it? Um, that was unfair because Jack was forced in all, out of manners to say, yeah, I guess so. And really, he loves some of those bands and I like some of those records too. Yeah. I certainly do, yeah. And so does James. So does James. James, on my si- James is on my side on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big time. Big time. By the way, Jack, I'm, uh, Jack, I'm going to Art Brute next week now. Or the week yeah, after. Yeah, We're, We're going to be at the same gig for the... For the first time in 15 years or whatever it was, like the last time. Art Brew, Top of the Pops. Yeah. Me, me, you and Eddie Argus in a room again. And when are Maximo Park playing next? <laughs> I'm just trying to join in. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to join in the general joy. Never mind block great. party. What did you want to say about the music, James? I, I know we've talked about this a couple of times now, but I can't get my head around the music they're playing and why. Now, before the Leicester game... Or, or after the Leicester game, we talked about the music they'd played before and we suggested maybe it was something to do with, like, you know, the minute silence to commemorate the death of the Queen. So we thought that they ditched Metallica and they're not going for anything too heavy. So they had, like, sort of, like, like Keen and Snow Patrol and whatever. It was all They were the Queen's of... favourite size, I understand. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. without doubt. Yeah, Mad for Muse um, as well. <laughs> but they seem to have kind of stuck with this mid-2000s playlist. It's a more likely explanation that somebody has, the person choosing the tunes has changed. Yeah, and it's someone who's about the same age as me and Jack, was <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they played Buck Rogers by Feeder before the game, which is a song that I, I think is probably over 20 years old. And look, obviously there's nothing wrong with music that's over 20 years old. Some would say that music that's over 20, year, 20 years old is much better, and they would probably be right. But it felt like an incredibly weird choice. It's a good song, by the way. It's got a CD And it's just, just bizarre. Some of the music. Sorry, you know what? I've not got more written down now, unfortunately. But it was like a weird no. mix of like more mid two thousands, mediocre indie. It wasn't quite boy kill boy from Wednesday night. I mean, my thought about this was that uh, these bands will be hearing this now, um, and they'll be thinking, "Wow, for a start, that is the certainly the biggest crowd to which their music has ever been played, and presumably the best PA over which it's ever been heard." Possibly, yeah. I mean, I mean, that, that's yeah. the headline. I mean, they, had, they played Supergrass, and again, like 
very good band. Uh, yeah. Fine, uh, but a bit, it just felt like an incredibly weird moment for that to be played before a game. Don't you think that the majority of as football as match going football fans get older uh, because of ticket prices, and you know Spurs is no exception to, to that. Having bands like Supergrass, who would be most popular with people in their forties now, does actually kind of make sense. That does make sense. That's really tragic, yeah. isn't it? Maybe they shouldn't be sponsored by Google. Maybe they should be sponsored by Absolute Radio. Spotify. Does Absolute Radio still exist? I don't even know. I don't know. That I d- oh, it does. Okay, good. I mean, this has led me on another thing, because my plan today, um, absolutely poo-pooed by the Arsenal supporting and very, very full of himself producer, was that we would, we would introduce the show with some of this music um, every week for, until Spurs stopped doing it. And then at, our, at the second half of the show... I wanted to play the version of McNamara's band, which Spurs used to run out to, but now they play as a kind of sop to the past at half-time, which led me down a rabbit hole. Now, nobody, and I'm going to say these words very carefully, nobody on this beautiful planet is better at tracking down music than me. It's my full-time occupation. The broadcasting is purely to finance it. And that version of McNamara's band, that very big swinging version, with a vocal, I can't find. I can't find who it's by or what it's by. Uh, so I went to, I thought I went to the very highest authority on this, Pete Abbott, who is the stadium announcer and who is as mad about music as me, Jack, everyone else on this, on this podcast. And this morning I got a, a, a text back from Pete saying, I don't know what it is either, Danny. And I know that it's extremely rare. And now he, see, I've now delegated the job of finding out who it is to Pete Abbott. But of course, if you're listening, and you know, and it must exist on record, unless Spurs had it absolutely made for the ground, which I find, you know, knowing Tottenham over the years, very, very unlikely. Um, I'd love to know. And if you do know, get in touch um, with me on Twitter, at Danny Kelly Words. Um, Jack's there, James is there as well. And uh, I, I'm sure I've seen that on, like, you know, you get those sort of albums of Tottenham Cup final tracks. And yes. Stuff. They usually see it's advertised. It's not the version, like, the though. It's not that version. Is it not no, that version? no. This version is mysterious, um, as though the Beatles made another album and then disappeared into the into the, uh, the ether. Um, very quickly, uh, I mean, I mean, this question was really, I put it into the running order. And if you do know the answer to what that version is, we'd very much like to find out. Give us a, a, a drop. There's a million ways to get in touch with The Athletic. It's all too open uh, to public interface. Um, that's my phone going, but it's, it's not what I was hoping for. Um, this was really in case uh, Tim was here. How do we feel about the prospect of Nuno turning up back up at, at Wolves? What, an, an, an early Christmas present for Tim? I mean, no one would be more excited about that than Tim. Yeah, oh my goodness. Uh, I, I couldn't really work out the reaction to that from Wolves fans that I saw on Twitter over the weekend. And I don't, other than Tim, I don't think I actually know any Wolves. I know I do know a couple sort of. did seem to be quite mixed. But I guess, I, I mean, this is quite damning, but I guess Nuno is kind of their pot, right? He's kind of the guy who took them to a whole new level in, in modern football terms um, and then left under a bit of a cloud. So you can kind of see they, they're going to get what we haven't had up to now, which is the return or the return of the Messiah. The king across the water, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I definitely worry now about that. Like, I think it's like the 5th of March or something, Spurs go to Molyneux. Obviously going to lose that game 1-0. Adama Traore. No, come on. Come on, come on. I mean, it, it presents a problem for you, I think, particularly, James, because Tim, who is sitting in for Charlie Eccleshare while he's doing paternal duty, and which is a great thing, he's just going to walk out, isn't he? He's going to go straight back to the Wolves' beat once Nuno is back. 
Well, I mean, it, it really depends who what lasts longer, Charlie's paternity leave or Nuno's second stint at Wolves, doesn't it, I guess? <laughs> OK, listen, thank you for, for all that. Let's get move on to the game. Remind me, if I forget, in this first half of the uh, the view from the lane to talk about the, 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 the season where Spurs started better than they did now because it's actually remarkable what went on in that first 10 games of that season. It is their first start since 1964, and I'll come back to that in just a second, 63-64. What did we make? Did we enjoy the game? I mean, my Tuckney Ape Worth, uh, Jack, is that when Spurs were in real control in the second half, it was pretty enjoyable. First half, they had a lot of the ball, and Everton had the best chances. I, I didn't think they played that well for the first hour or so, uh, and it wasn't that different from a lot from some spells that we've seen recently, whereas Tottenham do look a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit like kind of capable of being frustrated, let's say, particularly by a low block, particularly without Kulosevsky. I think it was a game which underlined the the kind of the, the limits of the Kane, Son, Richarlison front three, in the sense that uh, there's, that puts a lot of creative burden on Kane. And it really, they, they just lack a lot of that final third interplay without Kulisevsky in the team. But, you know, we, we, we have known this for weeks. That said, I thought the way they kind of raised it in the second half was really impressive. The uh, Bissouma 3-5-2 worked even better than it did against Brighton uh, or against Leicester. Um, and I thought that on an individual level, there were some great performances. Uh, Kane, Hoybio, Bensonker. Maybe not a full 90-minute overall brilliant performance, but... First time I saw it since his injury, I thought Romero played a bit more like himself, albeit against a very limited Everton front line on the day. And Kane's best game in the season, I thought, as well. I, I thought, <clears throat> I mean, it wasn't like massively awe-inspiring stuff, but I did think Spurs were in control. I mean, you're right, uh, Everton did have possibly the two best chances of the game on the break in the first half. But I didn't, there wasn't really a moment where it felt like Spurs were under pressure at any point. I, I, and the, you know, having cut, having been exposed on those two instances, I think they did pretty well to, to kind of nip that in the bud. Yeah, and I thought they were they were in control, and I don't think you ever felt like they weren't going to score. It felt like they were creating enough. I can give you the XG if you want. I know you like that, Danny. It's a, it was two point two, according to Understat, which is my XG uh, retailer of choice. <laughs> uh, the two point four nine to zero point five six. Which actually is Everton one's already slightly lower than I expected, given how good those two chances were. But I suppose it still reflects tremendous dominance, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, and yeah, I, I do wonder. You know, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll find out in the next maybe twenty four hours or so how long Richardson's going to be out. But it does feel like, assuming that is at least a couple of weeks, and hopefully, I mean, maybe we're hoping it is as short as that. It is going to force a change to three five two, which is obviously something we've discussed at great length over the last three months. Yeah, um, and I do wonder sometimes you just see that uh, where a manager is kind of almost forced into making a tactical change. We know he's dabbled with it a little bit in the last few weeks as well, uh, but you do. I, I just think quite often you look back on a season and think we were kind of forced into this personnel or tactical change, and it ended up being the thing that completely transformed the season. Uh, and I wonder whether we might see that now. It might, or it might change it for the bad, of course. It might change it for the worse. It might be that, you know, having made their best start to a Premier League season uh, uh, over 10 games, that, that, that everything suddenly falls away once uh, they've got that free man in field that I've been clamouring for for the last eight, nine months. It does, mean, it does also mean you have to play Kulusevski in the middle of the team, yeah? Yeah, well, I mean, look, <laughs> if Kulusevski's back, then that's probably going to be a good problem to have. But let's wait and see when he's back as well. I mean, I... I 
you do worry how long Spurs might be without those two players. I mean, Kulisevsky, he's back in training, but I, I don't think... I mean, Jack would have been at press conferences. I don't think there's been hugely positive noises from Conte in terms of him being back imminently, have there? Yeah, so Kulisevsky returned to training last week and the hope was that he would be able to play in the Everton game. But then he had a setback on Thursday. Uh, so he went for another scan on Friday um, morning to see that. I think it would... And Conte spoke about this on Friday. I thought you, you could detect a little bit of frustration in his voice with the situation. Uh, I'm actually going to go to the Conte press conference as soon as we stop recording. So um, by the time people listen to this, Conte will have spoken in public about both the Richarlison and Kulisevsky injury situations. Um, but yeah, it's if they don't, if they don't have Richarlison and they don't have Kulisevsky for the next few weeks or for the next few games, even then it and, and it's going to have to be three five two unless he decides he wants to play Lucas 3-4-3 which I think would not go down very well with the fan base but let's wait and see yeah I mean obviously medical people are involved and scans are being taken out I guess as we speak um, but in the interest of adding to the drama I should say that I spoke to Tim Vickery in Brazil last night and in Brazil they are shattered um, because they've deliberately changed um, their team to accommodate Richarlison in the run up to the World Cup and they've got a vast number of talented forward players um, and now they, the, the suspicion there is that his tears after the game means that he knows he's not going to make it for the World Cup, which is weeks, you know, weeks away rather than you know two matches away. Um, although to be fair, Richarlison, bless him, I don't know him as a person, of course, but his on-field um, demeanour is one of somebody who uh, likes to have their emotions clearly expressed at all times. Um, so maybe he's overreacting as well. We'll see when the, when the medics have have a look at him. Um, I want to talk about your piece that you wrote before Saturday's game um, and the vindication that we all so seek on this programme, Jack, when you were talking about Bentenker and Hoiberg being Spurs' best players of this season. Um, I think you tipped your hat in the general direction of Kane's start as well. Um, they were good. They were fantastic again. Yeah, I think they've been Spurs' two most informed players over the course of certainly the last month or so. Um, I know that... Kane is starting to play really well again. I thought yesterday was a big, sorry, Saturday was a big step in, in the right direction for him. But I, I have felt that Kane is, you know, there's another level we could get from Kane. Whereas Hoiberg and Bentenko, I think, are ap- operating at 100%. It's the best I've ever seen either of them play, I think. What Hoiberg has added in terms of going forward and the capacity to do stuff in the final third, I think is remarkable. You know, it was his move. He he, he led the move at, in Brighton, which led to Son crossing for Kane. He obviously crossed for Son in the, uh, for Son's vo- volley in the Frankfurt game. And then he scored the second goal against Everton with that charging run forward. And obviously, you know, the presence of Bissouma in the Brighton, you know, Brighton and second half at Everton does give him a lot more license. But... Um, I think he's playing fantastically well and he's, and he's turning really he's becoming a different player from the player that I think a lot of people had him down as being um, which was basically somebody who would you know do the dirty work in the middle and that's it so it actually got me thinking you know we, we, we've all spent the last few years being non-believers but I think Danny it's probably the time to ask if we're hoi believers are you a hoi believer oh totally yeah I say he's my he's my plimsoll line he is if I mean he always plays so you it's not a question whether you believe in him or don't believe in him and when we talk about Harry Kane's 400 appearance we'll talk about a player whose reputation with the crowd it was very similar back in the day who made hundreds of appearances for Tottenham a man called John Pratt who I'll tell you about in just a, just a little while James um, you're a hoi believer I you? told you I was Ben Curious, didn't I Ben Curious. I'm not I'm not Ben Curious. I'm Ben Tan convinced <laughs> 
this is this guys guys all right i'm gonna go with it yeah somebody, whatever. somebody uh i forgot i had a few people on twitter who used bentan connoisseurs for people who are big appreciators of, of bentan of bentan curve but i think i kind of feel like appreciating bentan curve is just so obvious like he's so obviously really really good like he's got a kind of natural grace to him that hoibio doesn't have uh, so it's like anyone who's watched football, just what you can watch Ben Tanker for three minutes and think, God, that guy's really, really, really good. Whereas I think Hoiberg, because it doesn't come quite so easily to him, it's uh, you know takes a little bit more appreciation. That's a bit like Messi and Ronaldo, that isn't it? Like like Messi, it all comes so easy. Ronaldo, it's yeah. all it's always a battle. Every, every single thing he's done, every single goal he scored, he's made look really difficult, and like it, it was like a complete physical challenge. That's the di- so that's the difference with those two. That that's the comparison they're making. Yeah, I mean, and, the, and speaking of this three in midfield then, and you're right to point out how good Benzikur and uh, Hoiberg have been so far, and we'll try and think, will we waste the human energy and try and think of better compound words to a, for, the, for the fans of those two players? Or no, we can be lazy and we can get our listeners to do it for us. Well, that's, that's the, certainly the way I've made my living over the years, and I, I, I totally approve of that. Um, the, the, I actually think that the, there's a possibility that the beneficiary of all, that, all this providing is fit might be Oliver Skip, because... The two we've been talking about, Annie Basuma, they're all essentially, you know, central midfielders who actually do better when they when they get forward a bit. Look at the way Hoiberg is is deployed for Denmark, for instance. Um, and Basuma actually wants to play further forward. Skip might be the one who, in the interest of balance, may replace one of those um, just to have somebody who really does want to hold. Well, I think one of like, one of Skip's last starts for Tottenham was the famous Bergwijn-Leicester away game last January, where they played... That was one... I think that was the last time before Brighton that they played... A, that they started with a 3-5-2. And as I remember it, Winks was playing just in front of the back three. And then they had Skip as one of the two who was pushing further forward, because obviously Skip has this amazing engine, which I think is one of the best things about him as a player. So maybe, I think... It, hopefully, Skip will get, you know, 100% match fit soon. And then he will be able to be a natural replacement, I think, for Hoiberg or Benton Kerr in this system, making the most of his energy, while probably keeping Bissouma as the defensive midfielder. Okay, well, it, 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 it is important that Skip gets it is fit now and has the trust, so-called trust of the manager, um, because if we're going to start playing three for whatever reasons, you're going to need, they can't all play all games. Although you know. Under Spurs' um, training regime, it does seem that certain individuals, the Dyers, the Canes, the Hoibergs, can play all minutes of all games. That seems to be the way that it's working. I want to come on to Harry Winks a bit later in the podcast. Um, and indeed, in Dombele, as we'll continue, players who still play for Spurs watch. I'm sure the listeners will bribe, bribe me with a better title for that section as well. Um, you're right to mention that Harry Kane was fantastic again. Every game appears now to be, he appears to be equaling or breaking some record. I'll say it again. He is now just eight off Jimmy Greaves. I did not believe that Jimmy Greaves' scoring record would ever, ever be broken. A mug's thing to think, I know. All records get broken in the end. But I, t- I tell you what, uh, James, I certainly won't live to see the person who breaks Harry Kane's record when that's done. How far behind his son? He's on like 120 for Spurs, isn't he, or something? I mean, that is quite a lot of goals over, you know, yeah. only like five or six years of his career, I guess. I think Son's going to fall some way short, but Harry Kane is clearly going to motor past this. Goodness, the way the schedule is, he could do it before the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible. And, you know, like you, 
I assume that was just a line in the sand that would never be like surpassed. It was just one of those numbers that you see in the record books in the Tottenham Hotspur annual or whatever that you just think it's just going to be. It's a set in stone that is never going to go. And and you know, I, I remember. I guess it was probably when Defoe played for Spurs, and this obviously sounds quite stupid now. But I remember like looking at the goals he was scoring quite early in his career, and he was getting sort of twenty in all competitions a season for a few seasons. Looking at that and thinking, he would have to do that every year for thirteen years or whatever it was to, to break that record. It's just impossible in modern football for a club, for a club like Spurs. You know, you can do it every Madrid or Barcelona. Because, yeah, then, because they run up huge amounts of goals every yeah, season. Yeah, every single well, they got they like, sign yeah. the best players in the world every yeah. season. And if you if you pay there for long enough, you know, like Messi and Ronaldo did at those two clubs, you're going to score 40, 50 goals a season every season for, a long, for as long as you're there. But yeah, I, I didn't I didn't think we'd see a player come to t- come through at Tottenham. You know, I, I know, we're talking about an academy player as well. Come through at Tottenham and break that record relatively quickly. I mean, eight, I know he's been eight knock, and a half knocking seasons. about... Yeah. I mean. Amazing. It is it is stupid, isn't it? So his first league goal was uh, his first goal was what when I can't even think which one it was now. Oh, it was Shamrock oh, Rovers actually, wasn't it? So yeah. actually, it is about it is about ten years ago actually. But he wasn't. But he not he as impressive. He wasn't a regular. He wasn't a regular starter until September twenty fourteen. Uh, so exactly. Just, just, so that's well, even I, later I, than that, really. In October, the league, I mean, he wasn't October, starting November, league games. Twenty So we're coming up to the so yeah, we're basically now at the eighth anniversary of him being a regular you know a regular week in week out player for Tottenham. It is unbelievable that he's got to this level that fast. He would have broken the Reese's record if Pochettino had taken my advice and replaced him, placed Adebayo in the team a bit earlier um, with Harry Kane. But I'm sorry to keep on about that. But you know, um, rarely, rarely am I right. But when I'm right, I'm very right. That's usually the case. Do we think he's going to get it before the World Cup? Because he needs. I think Spurs have got eight more games before the World Cup. I'd be surprised if he played. Yeah, he won't play against Nottingham Forest in the league. No, he's probably going to play six of those games. If Charlotte, if Charlotte and Kuzovsky are both injured, is is it going to play against Nottingham Forest? Are we back to sort of 18 no striker? Well, maybe he has to play. Maybe Conte will play him in that game. Maybe Conte will think. I mean, I think it's not Conte's job to care about the World Cup, really. No, it's absolutely not. Play him every single game. Um, I, I can't. Conte isn't going to care about the League Cup. Surely he's going to want to biff that off as soon as possible, if possible. The he club, might think it's his only way to win a trophy. I don't know. I, I don't know. Wow. I don't know. No, I mean he might think. I mean, I hope he doesn't think that. But um, and I don't think that either. But I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what Conte. But it look, is what, it Conte, Conte's not a guy who rotates. That, if it, it's, and clear. it's also fair to say that if you. Uh, Look at everything, including the Champions League final. Um, came with England. He's also a person who I think who lobbies very hard for himself oh, yeah, to yeah, play yeah, every yeah. game. Yeah, um, Kane wants to play every game. Kane's <laughs> yeah. always, you know, Southgate's always joking in press conferences about how if England are playing San Marino or whoever, well, especially Kane, San Marino. <laughs> yeah, uh, especially San Marino or like countries of equivalent level. That Kane Kane does not want to be sat on the sidelines watching his teammates banging goals against Andorra at all. Like he absolutely wants to be out there doing it himself so I mean 8-8 I mean not impossible can, is it it's not, not impossible, impossible at all no, no. I think it's probably more likely I mean it's probably unlikely he'll do it and more likely that he'll he'll do it in the time immediately after Christmas But and, um, which means there's going to be some mad moment where in a space of two or three weeks he breaks both the England all-time goal-scoring record and the Spurs all-time yeah, goal-scoring record he could do it in back-to-back games couldn't he in theory How many, oh, is it two for England or three <laughs> uh, three I think he'll do it in the World Cup final and then yeah, six just, days after the World he's Cup he's had a bad World Cup if he only scores three goals in seven games no it's That's fine other people will score the goals Kane will score the winner in the World Who's Cup gonna score, final sorry who else is going to score goals for England Jack, James Madison 
Do you trust that defence to eke out enough 1-0 yeah, wins yeah. to get to the World Gaspel. Cup final? Welcome to Gaspel. Listen, so Kane's going to score the World, sorry, yeah, he's gonna but, the World Cup final mm-hmm. in Doha on Sunday the 18th of December. Well done, break Harry. The, break the England record in doing so, for, even though James is probably correctly under my argument here. Sir Harry. Uh, Eve Antonio, I guess, can score, so yeah, score yeah. a few penalties. Um, and then, uh, what, eight days later, Tottenham will go to Brentford and Kane will break the Tottenham record at Brentford. Oh, I'm looking forward to those moments very, very much indeed. Happy Christmas, say. everyone. Yeah. Um, the, the, the actual landmark he broke um, uh, this weekend was his 400th career appearance for Spurs. He joins, according to the club, he joins another 12 people who've uh, achieved that. Um, the club is not right, but I'll get onto that in a second. One of the few uh, good things about being uh, getting older... Um, apart from having seen um, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, the Sex Pistols at their peak rather than Art Brute, um, is that I, of the thirteen players, I know, I know, of the third, I'm just, it's only, it's only funs. Um, of the thirteen players in the list, I saw either on television or in many cases with my own eyes the vast majority of these games. In fact, there are only three of those players that I didn't see play. If the season goes on as, a, as a, you know, injury free. Kane will overtake in the next few weeks um, the appearance records of John Pratt Phil, and Phil Beale. Probably won't get as far as Jimmy Dimmock. Hugo Lloris will overtake Dimmock and Gilzine and Ted Ditchburn to get into the top six all-time appearances. The one I'm, I'm sorry they didn't include is a man called Tom Morris. Uh, Tom, they, they, what they've done is they've included appearances since Spurs got in the league. Um, but prior to that, and, I, and I, there's a reason for mentioning it, because we're talking about club servants, um, Spurs had a player called Tom Morris back at the start of the, you know, he, his career st- scanned the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. He is he has he has records having played 523 games for Spurs. He stopped playing in 1912, but the reason why I wanted to mention Tom is he continued to be an employee. He was on the ground staff then, after that, looking after the pitch and the stadium, um, and he died in harness in 1942. He was still an employee of Spurs 30 years after he finished playing for them. Um, and the, the, the club, but they had, I mean, I can understand. You have to draw a line somewhere. And what were these non-league games he was playing? Um, but Tom Morris should have been in there as well. The only other person I want to mention in this is John Pratt. John Pratt played for, uh, people of a certain age will remember, played virtually every game for Spurs during the 1970s. He was the holding midfielder. And he was the absolute... He played 415 times in the 1970s. He was the absolute boo boy of the crowd. Spurs had loads of tricky, flicky, inventive players, a, a mixture of great teams at the start of the 70s, exciting teams at the end of the 70s, and terrible teams in the middle of the 70s. But John Pratt was an absolute ever-present. And partially with his name, um, people like me, a teenage version of me, we booed John Pratt. We thought he was just not the right kind of thing. Some of it is the Hoiberg argument. Some people could see the work he was doing and others um, just thought he just wasn't glamorous enough for Spurs. Anyway, he made 400-odd appearances. Afterwards, John, because footballs didn't make enough money to retire on those days, started a window cleaning service, a window cleaning company. And I remember being at uh, one of the magazines I ran, I think it was Total Sport, where um, the, the, the people around the building said, oh, we're having the windows cleaned today. You might have to take the desks away from the wall. Sure enough, here comes John Pratt with his bucket and chamois leather. Um, and now you know what kind of man I am. I believe in total honesty, searing dedication to the truth. 
I really, really sucked up to him and told him what a great player he was and how I cheered him to the rafters every time he pulled down that white shirt. Um, it is a piece of deception of which I'm hugely proud. Hello, James Richardson here, presenter of The Totally Football Show. It's a show about football, and sometimes it's about life, and usually it's about an hour long. This Thursday, it's particularly about the midweek Premier League games, Ten Hag against Conte, South Coast Derby dust-up between uh, Bournemouth and Saints, and the story tradition of the all-West London-Brentford-Chelsea clash. I'll be asking dumb questions. Duncan Alexander, Carl Anker and Ahmed Schubel will have clever answers, and you can find all of that by searching for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. Um, the last thing on this in the, on the game, then, uh, James, I missed something. I think you in, in your excellent um, WhatsApp commentaries that you do for the WhatsApp group uh, associated with this podcast said, "Did you see what Conte did to Spence?" And I couldn't work out there was something amazingly good or whether he kicked him up the backside. Do we need like a sort of a little jingle or a sting for, you know, James Moore is negative in the face of victory or something like that, that we can just drop in every time I do this? It's, people have already got the Darth Vader music in their minds. Yeah, go on. Probably worthwhile. I, I was very, very annoyed, like irrationally annoyed probably, that after the second goal, Conte instructed Sanchez and Spence to like get stripped ready to come on. Uh, and they were both stood there on a the touchline. And then the next time the ball goes out of play, it, for whatever reason, Conte decides he is going to put Sanchez on for Romero, but he's going to make Spence wait. So Sanchez goes on. Spence goes to sit back down on the bench. And obviously, like, everyone's noticed he's about to come on. The crowd the crowd is up a little bit. And then he's gone, you know, he's kind of, I guess, been a little bit embarrassed that he's then had to go and sit back down again. And two or three minutes pass, and he calls him back up again with Skip and Lucas this time. And the ball goes out of play two times between him standing on the touchline and eventually coming on. And I just thought, look, I, I'm, sure, I'm not saying there's anything malicious in that at all, but it seemed a bit cruel that uh, this guy who's been like starved of any football in the first three months of the season thinks he's going to get his opportunity to play at, at White Hart Lane for the first time, thinks he's going to get the last three or four minutes of the game and injury time, which would have ended up being about, I guess, six, seven, eight minutes. Um and ends up getting, I think, like 90 seconds of added time in which he didn't touch the ball. Didn't touch the ball, no. I was this just... felt a little bit cruel. I was looking forward to his first home touch. Do you see any cruelty in this, Jack? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I thought what I liked was the huge embrace that Conte gave to Matt Doherty when Doherty came off. Obviously, you know, I think quite a lot's been made about comments that, Doherty, that Conte seemed to make about Doherty that started last week. But clearly... He likes Doherty and he wants Doherty to be good. Like, he wants him to be fit and the player he was last season. Um, and the fact that, you know, I, th- I feel like we are getting closer to kind of good Matt Doherty, you know, Doherty of um, February, March 2022. Uh, clearly, this is really important to Conte. And it was amazing seeing the huge hug and encouragement he gave him. I, I can't remember seeing Conte quite as happy as that with a win for probably since the back end of last season, probably since Arsenal. Yeah, there was a lot of kind of fist pumping and stuff, wasn't there, at the end. He was definitely very G'd up with like, the crowd singing his name and stuff. Yeah, he was yeah. definitely like really, yeah. I mean, I mean Kane, uh, Kane almost had to peel him off him. Uh, he, he, the hug was going on far too long for Kane's comfort. You could tell he kind of, 
it was late night in the pub when somebody's telling you they're their best mate, isn't it? That they and, and he had to say he just wanted to get back to the bench, got a good ovation. Um, because I've done the Jack style research here, I just want to say um, yes, be very excited about the start Spurs have made. It doesn't guarantee anything. Um, as I say, it's the best start since 63 64 when they played 10, lost to 1 8 of those games. Let me just very quickly give you this, the stats are they're great. There's one fantastic thing in all of this. Jimmy Greaves scored 14 times in those 10 games. Spurs lost their opening game away at Stoke and then went on a, a run of eight victories in the next nine. Um, the the loss was particularly brilliant, though. You think they're in great form, don't you? And uh, they went to Blackburn and ship seven. Um, I don't know. This is in the days when footballers would occasionally away games um, go, have, have a few have a few scoops um, uh, in whatever hotel they were staying. But they lost seven two at Blackburn in the middle of that fantastic start. Uh, what I should make a point that one of the goals was scored by Blackburn's centre half Mike England, who was immediately bought by Spurs um, as a, as a reward for his efforts. But they uh, they it didn't it wasn't a great season in the end. Um, they finished fourth. Liverpool won their first title under Shankly, and Spurs went out in the first round of the European Cup Winners' Cup, which they were holders of to um, Manchester United because, of course, the draw is always rigged so the two English teams meet each other in the first round. Hello, Nottingham Forest and Liverpool some years later. Um, and they went out of the FA Cup, the only other competition they were in, again in the first round, to Chelsea. Um, of course, blinking Chelsea. Uh, so, that was a, so although it was a great start, it was an average sort of season. Hopefully, they'll be better this year. We'll have a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about some of the players who are away at loan. An apparent change in the ownership of the club. Calm down, everybody. And, of course, previewing the game in midweek when Spurs take themselves to Old Trafford. You're listening to The View from the Lane with me, Danny Kelly, Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, welcome back, everybody, to The View from the Lane. You're hearing from me, Danny Kelly, James Moore, and Jack Pitt-Brook today. Um, very quick um, look at some of the Spurs players who are out on loan because, of course, such is the complexity of the modern football financing. It's important for Spurs that some of these do better. And, Jack, um, great news for you. Not only are Naples, the, the Napoli, the best team in Europe now, um, since Manchester City's defeat at, at, against Liverpool, I've absolutely no problem in saying that. They're just scoring for fun. They're a really, really good team. Um, but Tangen Domble, thanks to an injury in central midfield, to a player whose name has momentarily escaped my cranium, um, is now a regular starter. Um, and according to a report I, I got from yesterday from Italy, um, starting to show A, some levels of fitness, um, and B, an ability to get forward that perhaps was missing from his game um, for, well, two and a half years, three, three years at Spurs. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing what um, what Spalletti has done with that with that Napoli team. I mean, mm. I, I, don't, I don't even have to do any research on this because I went on another podcast with James Horncastle the other day, so I'm just going to repeat what he said. Absolutely. Which which is that um, you know obviously lots the Napoli fans are pretty pissed off at the start of the season because they lost Mertens, Koulibaly, and Insigne in the summer, and yet um, Spalletti has built just like he did at Roma. Really, he's built a brilliant exciting to watch very you know good attacking team so maybe it was always the case that Ndombele just needed a league that he needed, he needed a coach who believed in him who played attacking football which he never really got at Tottenham and he pro- you know probably needed a league that was a, a bit less demanding certainly on the physical side which I think he's he's also got in he's also got in in Serie A so I think in a sense you know I don't I think what we know about Ndombele from watching him at Tottenham is probably wasn't cut out to be a central player at a team in the Premier League, a team at the very top end of the Premier League. But equally, there's a lot of talent there as well, and it might just be that Spalletti's Napoli is exactly the right place for him. Yeah, and uh, you know, every good performance probably puts a few bob on his value if Spurs are eventually uh, to shift him. Um, and you know, and he probably doesn't in case, because if they have a loan, if they have a if they have a like a loan purchase clause, like a loan op, a, an option to buy, then of course his <laughs> whether or not he plays badly or not makes no difference. You know, that clause isn't change, isn't going to change. Just just to clarify one point, I mean, Danny, you were saying that his fitness is improving, and the numbers I'm about to give you don't necessarily disprove that, but it is important context. He started four games this season. In the first two, he was hooked at half-time. In the third one, he was taken off after 57 minutes. And against Bologna on Saturday, he came, sorry, on Sunday, he came off after 70 minutes. So, I mean, it's an upward curve. He's getting there. Yeah, one day he will play 90 minutes for a professional football club. Um, and we will mark that occasion here on The View from the Lane. Um, so if that's a slightly upward curve for Tanga and Dombley, I haven't got such good news to report about Harry Winks, um, who I think left the club with most people's absolute best wishes. A bloke who obviously loved playing for Spurs and who, in my opinion, whatever you think about his talent levels, um, gave absolutely everything he had in, in every moment he was playing for the club. Um, he may be back rather sooner than expected. He has yet to play a single minute for Sampdoria. Indeed, uh, as far as I uh, get again from the same reporter, he is struggling to even join his teammates for training sessions. Um, with this ankle injury that uh, has just gone on and on and on, and the talk in Italy is that um, come January, if things aren't, haven't changed dramatically, um, he'll be on his way back to London. Jack, you know much about this? Um, I don't know much about the development since he's been in Italy, but clearly this ankle thing has been bothering him for a while. It was bothering him over the summer. I think it's required quite a lot of management really ever since, um, you know, for years. It's such a shame because I think that, you know, clearly there was a difference between the early winks we saw in those first seasons under Pochettino and then the kind of later winks that we got under under, uh, Jose and Nuno. Uh, And I think probably a part of that is down to the injuries. You know, he had that, um, obviously he, I think he, he had the, the severe ankle injury initially at in like Premier League game at Burnley, and then he had you know subsequently surgery on that kind of hip thigh issue in April 2019, and then came back to play the Champions League final. But after that, you know, but you know, for me, the kind of in the early stage of Winks, what was so good was not only his ability on the ball, but also his capacity to get around the pitch. You know, he was really aggressive and tigerish. But um, I think you know. Uh, 
didn't really quite see so much of that in the later years. So, yeah, clearly it's a it's a big shame that this is still troubling him all these years on. And I just hope that he manages to find a way to, you know, I don't want to. I hope he finds a way that it, to get back to playing football. Yeah, I mean, this is not a new thought, but just watching the games at the weekend in the Premier League. Again, there were not many times I was blown away by the quality of the football, but completely blown away by the sheer fitness of the players. What we're watching now, you know, Malcolm Allison 40 years ago talked about football turning into a track and field game. The athleticism is something extraordinary. And I do think um, without without coming Antonio Conte and going on about he's not 101% fit, um, if, you're, if you're off it in any way physically these days, you've almost got no chance. Because um, no, everybody's required to run and fight so much. And I don't mean clogging people. I mean the the, the, the the physical contact with everybody all the time. Amazing to watch. The thing that really underlines that for me is if, if you watch that uh, Liverpool-Manchester City game on TV yesterday, it's how often on Sky something happened. They were like showing a replay of an incident and then the next thing, the next thing was happening and they had to cut away from it. That happened like four or five times. It's quite annoying when you're watching the game. But it's just because... In Premier League games, in the big ones in particular, it all happens so quickly. It's all so frenetic and frantic constantly for the whole game. Arsenal, Arsenal and Leeds looked like a battle between two gangs of bees. I mean, it was just incredible. The amount of running, into running, running off the ball, knocking into each other. It was an incredible game to watch as well. Um, well, you, you know... These things happen with injuries, and I don't mean to sound fatalistic for Harry Winks. So hopefully, some surgeon, some brain box in Switzerland or the United States or something will, will find a way for him to move forward. Um, another piece of uh, news that dropped into Twitter um, and other places in the last 48 hours, 24 hours really, um, and caused quite a, a stir, particularly among the hashtag Enoch Out gang, if there is such a real thing, if it's not just some kind of Twitter thing. Um, Joe Lewis. Um, who has seemed to be an eternal figure at White Hart Lane, um, has ceased being the at least titular owner of the club. Um, Something's happened at Company House. Uh, uh, James, with all due respect, I'm going to ask Jack if he knows anything about this. So I don't think it really makes a huge difference. So Joe Lewis is no, I believe, is no longer listed as a person of significant control um, at Tottenham Hotspur with Company's House, you know, um, persons of significant control or something which has to be registered. With with Company's House, he's been replaced by, well, effectively by trustees. Um, but look, the fact is that Joe Lewis still owns a vast chunk of Tottenham Hotspur via Enoch. He, but why the change then, if it's so, even if it's only technical? So I gather it's to do with the restructuring of the trusts I don't think it will make a practical difference to Tottenham at all. Joe Lewis still owns the vast majority of Tottenham Hotspur via Enoch. Daniel Levy still obviously runs it for him. Practically, I don't, you know, I think that, put it like this, the trustees are not, they're not strangers to Joe Lewis either. No, there is, there is um, in some cases, I think the, the person who has been, who's named on the form as is, is one of his legal representatives. Yeah, so um, I wouldn't expect it to... So I, people, you know, I've seen all sorts of speculation going around on, on about this. That's very understandable. But I don't think it really makes a practical difference to Tottenham Hotspur. Can I ask you another question, Jack? And this is absolutely brutal. Um, off the back of this, I was thinking about it. Joe Lewis is 85 years of age. Has, has anybody 
at his end, ever expressed an opinion or a view about what will happen when, and, you know, for the, for the sake of the Lewis family, we hope it's another 15 years. Um, what will happen when Joe Lewis is no longer with us? Well, I think the most significant person at that point will be his daughter, Vivian Lewis, who is involved in the running of some of Joe Lewis's businesses. You know, she, the Lewis, I don't know the nature of Joe Lewis's will, but I gather he's worth roughly £10 billion. So there'll be, you know, quite a lot to go around when he is no longer with us. Um, And at that point, it will be interesting to see what Vivian Lewis, who is close to Daniel Levy, she at a game earlier this year, she was sat alongside Daniel Levy uh, in the box. She is in, I, I gather she is, you know, a figure known at the club. Uh, it will be interesting to see, assuming that Vivian Lewis re- effectively replaces Joe Lewis in terms of the ownership of of those shares in Enoch, which through which Tottenham is owned. It'll be interesting to see what Vivian Lewis's plans are regarding the club, if she would treat it the same as Joe Lewis or not. Um, I I don't know at this point. Well, you, you, you've informed me, you know, even the name Vivian Lewis is new to me. So you have informed me, and I imagine a lot of people listening, of the listening millions uh, to this podcast. But yeah, she, because, I, uh, I, I gather, or I, I expect that she will be the key person at, uh, at, at the next, you know, in future when, when Joe Lewis passes on. Yeah, she may, she may or may not have a, a great deal of interest in professional football. She may be the sort of person, right, I've got this 10 bill, I'm going to spend it all on midfielders. Yeah, Here well, we I go. think she does. I, 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 I mean, look, I think she does have... I think I know that she is interested in football, but ultimately there's no getting past the fact that really the person who runs, the person who runs Tottenham is still Daniel Levy. You know, you know, Levy has been Lewis's protege since the early 1990s. They've been very, you know, they've had this business relationship going back to lasting almost 30 years now. Uh, and that is still really the key relationship at Tottenham, regardless of whether or not Joe Lewis is a person of significant control or not. It's still, you know, it's, I mean, Levy is still the man who runs it. Um, and Lewis is still the man who owns it. Yeah, of course, the, uh, the in the back of all this as well, and thank you for all that, uh, Jack, in the back of all this is the, you know, the will they, won't they sell the club? Will they find someone who's prepared to buy a Premier League club? Such is the astonishing amount of money they're worth these days, because as we saw with Chelsea, these people can be found. Well, I think the current, the latest on that is that I think it's, al- it's always been Enix's broad strategic goal to one day sell the club. But... And I think, you know, everything really has to be viewed through that prism. But I think in practice, the... I don't think Tottenham particularly want to sell... I don't... Sorry, I don't think Enoch particularly want to sell now for the the simple reasons that, one, the valuation would be very high. And two, Levy doesn't want to say goodbye. Levy doesn't just want to go to the Bahamas or to go skiing and say goodbye to football he wants to he wants to oversee Tottenham winning something like he want you know this has come up in in previous nego- you know we we've reported this in the athletic when when Todd Bowley of course now owner of Chelsea when he tried to buy Tottenham in 2019 it you know what one of the issues was that Levy wanted to stay on as CEO underneath the Bowley ownership of Tottenham um and as you've seen from Todd's activities at Chelsea, Todd likes to do those jobs himself. Well, quite. So uh, I don't think Levy... Levy doesn't just want to sell to someone and then go off on his, you know, lavish retirement at all. Levy wants to to stick around. So I think... 
while a sale is always kind of it's always like there in the ether it's always being talked about i think the chances of a sale imminently i think are actually quite low for those reasons because i just don't think the appetite I, I don't really think daniel Levy wants wants to sell it right now I mean, I'm sorry, you put a vision in my head of 25 years from now. You two are both grey. Um, you've come back from my memorial service. And on the podcast, which now has over 20 million um, regular downloaders and is broadcast from the moon, you're discussing how Daniel Levy doesn't want to give up the reins at Tottenham. Um, he's, he's had a fantastic run at it, I think it's fair to say. We'll, we'll see how that all turns out. As we will, Tottenham's next fixture... Um, Always a, a weird one, Manchester United. So I've seen Spurs get some proper spankings there. And, of course, they've recently got six for themselves, um, including a, an opener from Tanguy and Domblay. Let's never forget that. Um, Jack, uh, sorry, James, beg your pardon, James. Looking forward, as usual, with your, your, your sunny uh, sunny optimism to the trip to, uh, to Manchester? No, obviously not. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because having, having historically or in a sort of medium term historically had a terrible record up there in the last decade what is it four wins I think up there now which feels not awful I mean there can't be many teams that have won there more than Spurs I think Man City probably won there like six times in that time but I doubt anyone else has won there that often um, so uh, yeah probably not quite a happy hunting ground but not uh, not quite as terrible a place as Spurs as it maybe was in the previous decade uh, but nonetheless, every time you just kind of expect some just absolutely insane bullshit to happen. Yeah, uh, like, a bit like, like those Chelsea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's going to be some new fast that's going to lead to Spurs losing the game. Some like unprecedented nonsense that's just going to end up, uh, you know, in YouTube compilations in like ten years' time of the maddest refereeing decisions or the craziest own goals or whatever. We know there's going to be something like that. Um, Do you have a favourite or least favourite? The does the six one kind of count because it was behind closed doors? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. Yeah, what do you want? Um, the that one where Gomez, Heredia Gomez, like thought he'd been fouled by Nanny, I think it was, and it's kind of picked the ball up and just kind playing, of playing. Yeah, thought <laughs> just kind of like started taking the free kick even without a whistle and just like left the ball there and then they just put the ball in the empty net. In a game that I think early in a season eleven twelve, I think. Uh, when they'd started the game quite well, from memory. Um, yeah, and obviously that penalty, the, the nonsense penalty in that game that Spurs were 2-0 up and lost 5-2 in 2008. Pedro Mendes... 2009, but yeah, 8-9 season. Uh, sorry, yeah, you're Mendes right, yeah. Mendes and the ball four feet across yeah. the line. Uh, uh, which, 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 you know, and you could argue it's a whole season, but the, the two points lost there... Cost us the place in yeah. the Champions League. No, it wasn't that season. Was Did it, it not? It's cost us place in the UEFA Cup, I think. Is that right? I think so. Okay, yeah, it was a season before that. Um, you're, you're, you're tempering my anger about it now. For all these, you should still, years, you should still be angry about it. It's I nonsense. am. I'm furious. Uh, yeah, so there's loads, and there'll be, there'll be a new one to look forward to on Wednesday night. I don't. Was there one last season? What was it last season? I mean, they played very well and then lost the game. But was there? I, I, in my mind, Eric Dyer's involved in this. I, but uh, you know. I may have that, as like, so last season, last season Ronaldo scored it. So you Tottenham with a better team, and Ronaldo scored a hat trick. It was basically like the last great Ronaldo performance. Oh, at, now you've uh, done it. Second to last. Second to last. Oh, I don't know. No, his his, his last great performance was uh, was yesterday, where the the, <laughs> the, the, the carry on when he got substituted. That was a tremendous piece of performative art. I thought. So Tottenham, um, Jack, I thought Tottenham yeah, played pretty well in that game last year, but they were. It was also right at that point, like. 
after it was what a few weeks after Burnley where everything really felt like on the edge and it uh, even though you could tell the performances were improving in quite a steady way uh, I remember lots of people probably me included got a little bit uh, you know there was quite a lot of frustration around around the result of this game and oh they're not creating enough they're not doing enough but actually they played they were the better team in that and, and conceded like three slightly weird random goals to Ronaldo I'd be happy if they play as well as that, uh, well as that again on Wednesday night because I think that would give them a good chance of winning the game I mean Manchester United are in general better than they were last season I think but they're not you know they're not they're not as good as they were at their peak over the last three or four years and not as bad as they have been in their sort of nadir or various nadirs. So I think you have to look at Manchester United as being one of the teams in the mix for top four rather than in the mix for anything better than that, which puts them in a group, I guess, probably with Spurs. So it's a, it's, it is a big game. And that, they can open up a pretty big gap, actually, over Manchester United if they win as well. I guess, well, they're four points ahead of them now with a game having played a game more. So if they can go seven points ahead, with a big gap to Liverpool as well. No, every every game is important to, up to the World Cup now, be, uh, not least because, I say, the second half of the season is so unpredictable. It's a bit like cricket and you get where you get the first innings. You don't know what you're going to need. Um, and so I think teams are desperate to stockpile these points before their players go off for, five, in some cases, five, six weeks. In the end, it's only, it's only three points, but I think having a lot of points already got by the time everyone goes off to Qatar it's very very important it's all about points on the board right normally at this point in the season you'd say you'd be more concerned about performances wouldn't yeah. you like, can you run yourself can, into form can and we, all that can yeah. we play well so that we can repeat that performance level and then that will guarantee us points but because we're basically it's two short seasons this year it's like a kind of Argentine league or Mexican league or whatever uh, the Apertura and Clausura it's all about points on the board until before Christmas and then worry about after Christmas afterwards like I um, you know the, the the second half of the season will take care of itself but they've just got to get they've got to maximise their points tally now and Conte's more or less said this and Lloris has more or less said this as well yeah I guess the only I mean United have definitely improved on the ten hole it's no point pretending otherwise um, they're, they're very I mean for all of his talk about organised football they I mean you saw the game against Newcastle yesterday that they, they are still very attacking Manchester United. When they get the ball, they, they flood forward and it'll be uh, you know, interesting to see if um, Spurs' famous uh, ability to rebound off teams that are coming at them um, serves them well uh, on, well, on I, the night. On I mean, look, I, 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 at the risk of being vaguely positive and potentially cursing Spurs, they've not scored loads of goals, Manchester United, have they? 13. Uh, and I think I saw someone tweet, and I am looking at the table, but I'm not going to work it out. I think only Bournemouth in the top 10 have scored fewer goals and if they throw loads of players forward in vain attempts to score goals do you back a team with Kane and Son to score a goal or two on the counter I mean that's the whole point yeah I I think the evidence of your own eyes is that that's what's happened but I do not expect for instance um, Casimiro should have scored at the weekend Marcus Rashford should have scored at the weekend. You can't keep on getting in the kind of positions Manchester United players were getting in against Newcastle, who are, after all, the best defensive team in the Premier League. Um, you can't keep getting in those positions and it not go in. Otherwise, the, the game is mad. Um, they were, you know, somebody, is, somebody is going to concede four to Manchester United very soon, I think. Um, I, don't, I, I hope and I believe it won't be Spurs on Wednesday. We'll see what happens. It's an eight o'clock kickoff. And you two both go for three five two with Basuma. I can't see a, I can't see an alternative. Can you? If I Lucas has history at Old Trafford, three, three yeah, 
It's kind of slightly forgotten by history. Yeah, it's slightly forgotten, isn't it? That 3-0 win at the start of the 18 season. Um, which actually went some way to kind of sinking Mourinho as United manager. With, with, but, te- um, with, with terrible ongoing yeah, consequences. I'd be really, I'd be, <laughs> yeah. Bloody Lucas. I'd be really surprised if, if he goes for Lucas Lucas or Gill in a, in a 3-4-3. I think it has yeah, to be 3 I suspect you're absolutely right. We'll soon know, as is always the joy, um, not just of football in general, but particularly this season when the games just keep on coming. And I am enjoying what, what most people whose clubs are stuck in the championship uh, must enjoy a game every three days. It's fantastic. Um, we'll be back after the, uh, the that game on Wednesday, on Thursday, with another podcast. In the meanwhile, let me remind you that if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, that you can sign up to read all of the brilliant Spurs coverage this season, as well as everything else on the site. Just go to athletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just £1 a month for six months. That's athletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Um, thank you very much, James. Thank you very much, Jack. Thank all of you for listening. Come on, you Spurs, and we'll talk to you again on Thursday. The Athletic.